Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we pray that as your word has just been read, we pray for your spirit to now accompany the preaching of that holy word. We pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and that we would be built up, that you would use this as a holy moment to strengthen and to nurture our faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might know that I was involved in Boy Scouts growing up, which meant I went camping a lot. It was typically primitive camping, so what that means is that you would not just uh, park and camp right next to your car with all the amenities. No, you would have to hike a few miles to find your campsite. You would have to be plenty far from your car, from all roads, from all sources of electricity, from restrooms and latrines, and we would sleep in tents and, and cook our food on open fires. Now, on rare occasions, we would go hardcore, and we would ditch those tents and just sleep outside, usually with sleeping bags. But I remember on one occasion, I remember we did it without sleeping bags. I think we had to earn some badge or, or something like that. And I just remember, I still remember it being one of the worst nights of my life. So cold, so uncomfortable, I just couldn't stay asleep. I just kept tossing and turning and shivering constantly, you know, checking my watch, counting down the minutes, just waiting for the dawn. So you can imagine my excitement once the darkness all around me began to brighten ever so slightly. When a nearly imperceptible glow began to fill up the night sky, the sun had yet to break the horizon. I had yet to feel its warmth. My body was still shivering cold. But that glimmer of light before the dawn, oh man, somehow it warmed up my heart because I knew what was coming next. What I had been longing for was, was literally on the horizon. So even before its arrival, I could say that my heart, my attitude, my entire outlook was all beginning to change. Well, friends, I really believe that something similar is happening in this morning's text. The people of Israel, we're told, are like those who are sitting in darkness, sitting in the shadow of death. They've been tossing, they've been turning, they've been restlessly waiting for the dawn now, the last prophet of Israel was my, uh, Malachi. And the uh, span of time between Malachi and the closing of the Old Testament to the birth of John the Baptist was roughly 400 years. So 400 years, God was silent. For 400 years, he sent no prophet, no word from the Lord. For 400 long years, the people of God waited in silence, enduring a prolonged spiritual darkness. Now, we saw earlier, as we were studying Luke chapter 1, we saw that Zechariah himself had to endure his own season of darkness and silence. He was unable, we're told, to speak for nine months during the entirety of his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy. And his long silence 
if you think about it, was really a microcosm. It was a perfect illustration of the long years of silence that Israel had to endure because the root cause in both cases was unbelief. Zechariah did not believe the word of the Lord. And throughout their checkered past, the people of God proved that they didn't believe in God's word either. And the consequence was divine silence. They rejected God's word, and so he just withdrew it altogether. And they would soon realize, very soon, what they have been missing. They would realize just how good and how gracious God is that he is willing to speak to them in the first place. And soon they would grow restless. They would begin to to long and to yearn for God to visit them once again, for God to once again bring a word to send a prophet. Well, Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, offered a ray of hope within his own prophecy. At the very end of his prophecy, in chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord promises, quote, that for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That imagery there of a sun rising. In other words, what Malachi is saying is, Israel, do not fear because the silence will be broken. The darkness will come to an end. The morning sun shall rise again and God will visit his people once more. You can be sure of that. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 1, we begin to see those glimmers of light before the messianic dawn. Starting with the angel Gabriel's annunciation to Zechariah about the birth of his son. And then the glow continues to grow as there's the annunciation to Mary about her son. And then there's the leaping of joy by the prenatal John when he comes into the presence of the prenatal Jesus. And then Mary's Magnificat, her song that we studied last week. And then, of course, the birth of John the Baptist in the passage prior to ours. These are all glimmers of glowing light. The sun, of course, has yet to break the horizon, but people can see the morning sky begin to glow. It's that light before the dawn. That's what we're seeing in our passage. And suddenly, with His tongue loosed, Zechariah, we're told, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he broke out in song, much like Mary did. Now, traditionally, this hymn is called the Benedictus because it begins in Latin with the phrase, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So this song, this Benedictus, is a hymn of praise, the hymn of blessing to God. So church, as we walk through it, what I want to do this morning is to show you four ways in which the Lord is uniquely blessed. He is uniquely praised. If you want to follow along, pull out the, the outline in your bulletin, and you'll see here that he is praised first for his plan of salvation. Second, he is praised and blessed for his promise of salvation. Third, for his prophet of salvation, and lastly, for his purpose of salvation. So that's where we're going to be going as we walk through the Benedictus. Let's consider the first praise in this hymn. Blessed be the Lord for his plan of salvation. According to Zechariah, this plan of salvation has been a long time coming. 
having been prophesied from the holy prophets of old. Look, look with me in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So from the very beginning, God has a plan a plan to reign over his people with benevolence, ruling over them in love as their rightful king. Now, Adam and Eve, the first couple, they were made in his image, and they were delegated authority to serve as his vice regents. They were given dominion over all of creation. They were to exercise authority on behalf of the Lord, not for selfish gain, but for the glory of God and for the good of all creation. That was the plan. God established a kingdom on earth that took the shape of a garden. But, of course, as the story goes, Adam and Eve were not content to just be vice regents. They wanted the throne. They wanted to be God. And for that, sin and curse entered into the world, and God's people were expelled from the garden. They were exiled from the kingdom. But all was not lost. All along, God had a plan of salvation, a plan to redeem all things, a plan to restore his people back into right relationship, to, to restore them back under his loving, benevolent rule, to restore them to become vice regents again, serving his kingdom on earth. And at the center of this plan is a mighty Savior. Zechariah references this messianic figure in verse 69. He says, to bless the Lord, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, you have to understand that in Scripture, horns are symbols of great strength and might. So, horn of salvation here is really a figurative way of describing the Messiah, particularly describing him as a mighty Savior. And as well, we're told that he is a royal member of the house of King David. This Messiah is understood to be a mighty, kingly figure. Now, by the way, I, I do realize it's, it's a bit confusing here when Zechariah is speaking in the past tense about events that have yet to occur, like, like the birth of Christ in this case. He's speaking in what's known as the prophetic past tense. That's quite common in prophetic literature. Basically, the, the prophets, they would speak in this way, speaking in the past tense, as a way of conveying the idea that this prophecy is as good as done. So the visiting and the redeeming and the raising up of a mighty Savior are, of course, for Zechariah, from his perspective, they're events that have yet to take place. They are for the future, the very near future, but still they're in the future. But as he prophesizes this, he's like, it's, good. it's as good as done. It's going to happen. Because the holy prophets of old have been predicting these things for centuries. That's what he goes on to say in verse 70. The prophets of old have been speaking of these events. The prophecies go all the way back, all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the garden Right after the fall, right after sin and curse entered into the world, God promised that the offspring of the woman would rise up one day to defeat the serpent, to defeat the great enemy of God and of God's people. 
And then later, other prophets would speak of this coming Messiah. For example, the prophet Nathan, he would speak to King David in 2 Samuel 7, the words of the Lord saying, quote, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A forever kingdom. Now, ancient readers recognized that this prophecy was partially fulfilled in David's son Solomon, who, who actually did end up building a house for the Lord's name. He built the temple. But they also recognized that the prophecy still pointed even beyond Solomon, still pointing forward to a future offspring of David through whom God will establish a forever kingdom. Well, the prophet Isaiah captures this messianic hope in Isaiah chapter 9, which of course is a passage that is commonly read during this season of the year. Isaiah 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, this is how the holy prophets of old spoke of the coming Messiah. He would have a government. He would have a kingdom because he would be a king, and he would establish a never-ending peace on earth. That, my friends, is God's plan of salvation. Now, we should ask ourselves, if he's coming to bring salvation, what exactly is the Messiah saving us from? Now, I know the stock answer for most of us would be from our sins, from the consequences of our sins, which is death. And and yes, the, the song definitely does go there. Look in verse 77. There, the, the forgiveness of sins is central. It's central to God's plan of salvation. But that's not all that his salvation will accomplish. Look back with me at verse 71. It says, God will raise up a mighty Savior for this purpose. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So notice with me here, this very worldly nature of the salvation the Messiah brings. Notice with me the political overtones. It's focused on physical deliverance from enemies and from those who hate us. No doubt Zechariah was thinking about the Romans who had occupied their land. He's thinking about just any foreign powers that have historically oppressed the Jews. He's hoping for a mighty Savior to deliver them from foreign rule, from physical and political bondage. That's clear here in his hope as he's singing this song. Now, I know that that sounds strange to us because we're not used to speaking of salvation in such terms. When we talk about salvation, we tend to focus on spiritual deliverance from our own sins, not physical deliverance from human enemies or from foreign powers. But the prophets of old and also the New Testament apostles, they had no trouble holding both views, seeing God's plan of salvation in terms of both spiritual and physical deliverance. But what Zechariah most likely did not recognize, and what the apostles themselves did not initially recognize, is that God's plan of salvation, which encompasses both spiritual and physical dimensions, takes place in two phases. 
the Messiah's visitation occurs in two phases, or you could say two comings. In his first coming, the Messiah fully redeemed us from the bondage of sin. There in the first coming, the emphasis surely was on spiritual bondage. It had a spiritual dimension to it. But not until the second coming will the Messiah fully redeem us from bondage of all other forms of oppression, fully redeeming us from bodily decay and death, from abuse and injustice, from conflict and war. That awaits a second coming. The failure to discern a distinction between these two comings is what led so many in the Gospels to miss the true identity of Jesus. They were so focused on a Messiah saving them from their enemies that they failed to recognize a Messiah who taught us to love our enemies. They chafed at a Messiah who refused to pick up the sword and resist the Romans, who instead fell on the sword, allowing the Romans to execute him. Many walked away from Jesus because he failed to meet their messianic expectations. But it's usually because they made that simple mistake of failing to discern the difference between his two comings. And friends, I am deeply concerned that none of you make that same mistake. If you're dealing right now with some deep disappointment towards God, could it be that you're expecting to experience right now as an aspect of your salvation in its fullness something that won't be fully accomplished until the second coming. You became a Christian, and now you're expecting good health, a happy marriage, a fulfilling vocation. You're expecting joy-giving relationships. You're expecting to be fulfilled and satisfied, to no longer suffer, to no longer shed any tears. And as a Christian, you are totally in the right to expect those things. All of those expectations are all yours in Christ, but only after his second coming. That's the thing. After he comes again to make all things new, then all of your expectations will be fully realized. If you don't understand this distinction in God's plan of salvation, if you don't discern the difference between the two comings of Christ, then you are bound to experience deep disappointment with God and with your faith. That's why it's so important to understand the difference. Let's keep, let's keep praising our Lord. We've been praising Him for that plan of salvation a plan that comes in, in two phases. Now let's look back at the Benedictus and consider a second praise. Blessed be the Lord for his promise of salvation. In verses 72 to 75, God is praised for his mercy, which he promised to their ancestors, which he enshrined in a covenant, which he secured with a sworn oath, which he is keeping to this very day. <clears throat> Verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. See, previously, Zechariah was focused on the prophecy given to David. Now what he does is he draws back even further, back to the covenant and the oath 
that God swore to Abraham. And that brings us, of course, to the, the most well-known passage for Abraham in his story. That's Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is the first time that God makes a promise to bless Abraham. He says, I will make, you a great, make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, a blessing to all the families of the earth. And then the Lord reiterates that same promise to Abraham later on in Genesis 15, verse 5, telling him, telling Abraham to look up in this night sky, telling him that, Abraham, you and your offspring are going to rival the number of stars that you can see in the night sky. And then later on in that chapter, in chapter 15, verse 17, the Lord enters into a formal covenant unilaterally binding himself to Abraham and to his offspring under a willing obligation to fulfill all of his promises to Abraham. Now, the way the Lord enters into that covenant with Abraham there in Genesis 15 is quite telling. It's very unique. We're told that the Lord instructed Abraham to cut a number of sacrificed animals in half and to lay those cut-up bodies across from one another, and to kind of create a path in between these cut-up animals. Now, typically, you would expect the two parties entering into that covenant with each other to walk between those cut-up bloody carcasses, and essentially, you would be invoking a self-curse upon you as you enter into that covenant, basically telling your partner, let the same bloody mess occur to me if I ever break faith with you, if I ever break covenant. That's what you would expect to happen when a covenant like this is made. But in Genesis 15, something different happens. It goes on to say that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and he completely passes out. And in Genesis 15, verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, these carcasses. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So God, represented by that smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, passed between the bloody pieces without Abraham. He slept through the whole entire thing. Now by doing it that way, by passing through those pieces alone, God was communicating his unilateral commitment to keep his promises even if Abraham or even if his offspring were to eventually break covenant, God says, I won't. I won't break this covenant. God remains committed, even willing to bear the entire penalty for our covenant breaking. That's what he's communicating there. And essentially, that's exactly what happened on the cross of Christ. That was God on the cross proving how committed he is to his promises, willing to suffer the penalty of our covenant breaking so that his promises can always stay true. Now, you know, you would think that making a promise to Abraham and then enshrining it in a covenant of this sort would be more than enough to just prove how committed God is to his promises. But he goes even further than that. In verse 73, Zechariah mentions an oath 
that God swore to Abraham. That's referring to later on in Abraham's story in Genesis 22, after Abraham was willing to obey and to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And the Lord there responds in Genesis 22, verse 15, by reaffirming his covenant promises. But then in verse 16, he reinforces his commitment to that covenant by swearing by himself. Now, typically when people would swear an oath, they would swear by something else, something greater than themselves. But since God had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He picked the the greatest thing in the universe, the most constant thing in the universe. He says, I want to swear by myself. There really is, friends, no stronger way for God to prove his everlasting commitment to his covenant than to swear an oath by himself. So I hope you are encouraged to hear that. Because perhaps some of you are struggling to believe God. Perhaps some of you are struggling to believe his promises. Years of unanswered prayer can do that to you. Years of frustrated efforts and unmet expectations can result in a real subtle hardening of your heart towards God, towards his promises. Perhaps you've given up on God. Perhaps you're thinking God has pretty much given up on you. If that's you, I hope that you are starting to see in Zechariah a great example of God's faithfulness to his promise of salvation in spite of our faithlessness and struggle to believe. Because remember, Zechariah started off chapter 1 struggling with doubt and disbelief, but now he ends the chapter in worship and praise, blessing the Lord for his everlasting commitment to his promises. Well, perhaps you began this morning entering into this service struggling with doubt and disbelief. Well, I pray that you end this morning praising the Lord who has promised to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him in faith. And he secured that promise with a new covenant. And he bore the entire penalty of our covenant faithlessness through his death on the cross. And so when he adds to that a sworn oath, when he says on top of that promise, on top of that covenant, I'm going to swear by myself on my own immutable nature and character, I will, I will promise to save all who trust in me. What more can you ask for? What more do you need? You just need to draw near to him in faith. So far in this hymn of praise, Zechariah is blessing God for his plan of salvation blessing God for his promise to keep that plan. And now, as he continues on, he narrows his focus and he gets personal. He begins to turn his attention from the coming Messiah, what he does for all, to now his newborn son, what he has done for him and his family. Here's the third praise in this hymn. Blessed be the Lord for his prophet of salvation. Look at verse 76. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Remember again, up to this point, 
There had been no prophet in Israel for roughly 400 years. And now, suddenly, a prophet of the Most High has been born. And he has been given a singular mission to go before the Lord, to go before the Messiah, and to prepare his way to give the knowledge of salvation. Now, if you fast forward 30 years into the future, and later on in Luke chapter 3, we do find John the Baptist at the Jordan River, quote, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Crowds were flocking to him to get baptized, not because it conferred the forgiveness of sins, not because it expressed that you had already been forgiven of your sins. No, John's baptism served a preparatory function. It was a way to acknowledge your sinfulness and your desire to change, to turn away from your sin. It was known as a baptism of repentance. But John told the crowds that day that while he baptizes with water, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John knew that his job was not to bring salvation itself. It was to pave the way for the one who would. John prepares the way. Jesus is the way. John proclaims salvation. Jesus accomplishes it. John understood this very clearly. He knew his role. He knew his mission. His life purpose was to prepare people to follow someone else. So when his own followers began to abandon him to start following Jesus, he said that made his joy complete. He was so happy to see people abandoning him to follow Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. That was his attitude. But even as his life mission was to decrease, we're told that John lived a life of greatness. Later on in Luke's gospel, in chapter 7, verse 28, there's this place where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he's telling his followers, quote, that among those born of women, none is greater than John. Because in the kingdom of God, the great ones are those who live their lives pointing away from themselves and directing people's attentions to Christ. And no one did that better than John. But friends, I want you to take encouragement in this. Because after Jesus said that none who have ever come before have achieved the greatness that John achieved, he goes on to say in Luke 7, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Talking about John. In other words, a life of greatness is still obtainable for us. A life that matters. A life that carries eternal significance and honor is not out of reach for you. Perhaps some of you are struggling with your purpose in life. Life has not turned out as you had planned. And so you fear that you may not be living a life that really counts. 
It's a wonderful life. It's a phrase that we use quite a bit during this season. And that can be true of you. But it won't be achieved by endless self-promotion. It won't be achieved by using other people to advance yourself. No, a great life, a wonderful life, modeled after this great prophet of salvation, is experienced when you die to self and you live your life directing people to focus not on you but on Christ. Like John, make it your life mission to prepare the way of the Lord by sharing the knowledge of his salvation. Make that a part of your mission on this earth to share the knowledge of salvation, pointing other people to the Savior. That's a life that counts. Greatness in in the kingdom of God looks like service. Serving God, sharing the knowledge of his salvation. And that's what we're saved for, according to our text. Saved for service. That leads us right into our last point. The fourth praise in this hymn. Blessed be the Lord for his purpose of salvation. We see a couple places here of what God's plan of salvation is purposed to accomplish. We already touched on some of this earlier. We touched on the spiritual and the physical dimensions of salvation. We talked about how the Messiah is going to bring the forgiveness of sins and as well the deliverance from the hand of our enemies. Just not all in one visit. It's going to take two visits for all of that to fully be accomplished, but that is a purpose of salvation. But look with me at verses 74 to 75 and notice with me how salvation leads to service. Salvation leads to service. Look at verse 74. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Notice with me how the Lord's salvation results not just in deliverance from our enemies, but deliverance from fear. Because in those days, the people of God served their foreign rulers out of fear of punishment. But now, Because salvation has come, they are saved to serve their Messiah, their new king, not out of fear, but out of a holy and righteous desire. That's what salvation is for. For the forgiveness of sins? Yes. For deliverance from our enemies? Definitely. For a life of comfort and convenience? Certainly not. We are saved to serve to be restored once again as those vice regents, exercising dominion on the earth for the glory of God and the good of others, serving the Lord not out of fear, but out of love. Has your salvation led to joyful service or has it resulted in empty ritual? A lot of Christians feel like their faith has gone dry and their growth has been stunted. They feel like they're just going through the motions now, going to church, singing the songs, listening to yet another sermon. Now, you know, there could be a number of factors contributing to this spiritual dryness, but the majority of the cases that I've observed in my years of ministry have really a simple explanation. They stopped serving. 
Now, they, they might have pulled back from Christian service for legitimate reasons. They were burnt out. They just started a family. They just moved to a new city, had to find a new church, had to find new ways to serve. But after things settled down, sadly, they never reconnected. They never reengaged in using their spiritual gifts to serve the Lord and His church. It's no wonder they feel frustrated in their faith. It's no wonder they're not growing. They were saved to serve. As new creations in Christ, we have a natural instinct to serve. But if you suppress that part of your new nature, then it's like preventing a bird from flying or a rabbit from hopping, or a deer from leaping. It's no wonder if you feel frustrated. It's no wonder if you're lacking in joy. You have to find a way to serve God. Find a way to serve others, because as Christians, that is part of your new nature. You were saved to serve. That's a clear purpose of salvation, emphasized here in our text. Now let's just consider one more purpose. Look with me at the very end of the song, Verse 78 to 79, and notice how salvation brings a great light. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now the imagery here is of God's people lost in the dark, wandering aimlessly in the valley of the shadow of death. And then suddenly, the light before the dawn begins to glow in the fill of the night sky. And when the sunrise finally does break the horizon, when the Son of God was born, when He visited us from on high, the darkness fled. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The shadow of death flees from his presence. And Christ will guide our feet in the way of peace, granting peace with God and peace with men. As you celebrate this Christmas, may you experience the tender mercy of God And may the light of Christ fill you and fill your home with gospel warmth and peace. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this passage and through it in the way that you fill our hearts with great light, with great hope, with great joy and peace, reminding us of your great and glorious plan of salvation that was accomplished in Christ to be fully realized in his second coming. And so we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, oh, come quickly. We pray all this in your name. Amen.